Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Hi, everyone. I can't wait for you to hear today's conversation. My guest is a brilliant actress and also happens to be one of my very good friends. Today, I'm talking to Michelle Monaghan. She joins us on the pod to share her story, what it was like to grow up in Iowa. We discuss some of her incredible roles. We talk about her latest show, Messiah, which you can watch on Netflix. And we really dive into purpose. I'm super excited for you to hear this. Enjoy. So happy you're here. <laughs> Gosh, I, I was actually thinking when we were prepping for this, I was trying to remember when we first met. And I don't, I, I feel like you and I have just been in each other's lives for so long. I can't even. I know. I, I feel like the first time we met was at an event or something. And I, I want to say it was like maybe a Golden Globe party, maybe the Insta. Yeah. I, I don't know. I f- or maybe it was in New York. And then I feel like we properly got to meet or hang out, I guess, through our mutual friends, Aaron and Lauren Paul. Yes. And I think that's when we really started to get to know each other. Yeah. That's when we took it from like, you're another nice person at an event. Yes. To- Let's have a margarita and be nice together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like like IRL bonding about totally. life. Yeah. Exactly. And I just love it. You, yeah. You've been one of my favorite people to watch. And, and really, if I may, for a second, like separate myself from our friendship, as a viewer who watched your work for a time before we met- you have always had this very enigmatic, warm, like larger than life charm, which makes you feel like a person that 
anyone in an audience could be friends with, which I think can kind of be inhibited at times by someone who looks like you look. Mm -hmm. You know, you've always been this like wildly beautiful, sort of like tall giraffe. Like (laughs) you have like a supermodel vibe to you. (laughs) Thank you. And you literally don't care about it at all, (laughs) which is so wild. You know, when people get to know you, they're just like, wait, she's the most normal, kind person. Like you don't care that you're beautiful, which I think is so amazing. And you're also just one of the most down people at any dinner, at any party. Like you bring the fun and it's, it's just awesome. And I I feel very lucky to be your friend. Thank you very much. Those are all really, really, really kind things to say, but there are days when I care about my beauty probably more than I should. I mean, listen. And those are the days that I add the Paris filter or (laughs) (laughs) the one swipe to the left, which I'm like, oh, no, I don't look so tired, you know. Yeah, Um, I also just appreciate that that's like a filter that doesn't change your face but does remove acne. Yes. You know? Let's be real about that. I'm like, who wants to look at this PMS breakout on my face? I don't. Exactly. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's sort of like – the whole thing. With we're all just human. Kills me. I'm like, I thought those were years were done, but no, it's like a whole, it's a whole new round I get to enjoy the older that I get. Keeps me humble is what I say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think that's good for us. And, yes. I, and I think being practical about good days and bad days is it also important. A hundred percent. Because so often I think it can look to people like once you achieve a certain thing, especially in entertainment, yeah. that you must just be happy all the time. And it's like, no, I'm still an insecure person who I, has to live in 100%, my body. You know, I, <laughs> it's, it's so, so true. And I say this, I was just talking to um, a gal about this the other day. Uh, and it's so true. It's We were just talking about after having had babies and things like that. And she, it was like eight months out. And I said, listen, you know, we all have to give ourselves time to Mm -hmm. get back to where we were. You know, you think about, you know, how much time you spent being pregnant and then breastfeeding and everything like that. I mean, reasonably, it's going to take you two years, right? And you're not going to have a a different body than you did before. You're going to have probably the same. But but, but But I was saying, you know, it forces you to really appreciate you know, the body that you have now, because five Mm. years from now, I'll be like, I can't believe I was sitting around bitching about this part of my body or focusing on it so Mm -hmm. much when, you know, really it's inevitable. We're going to age. So appreciate what we have now, just in the physical sense, but also in, you know, in the sense of our careers, like those are the same Mm. ideals. You know, sometimes people who are just starting out acting will be like, oh, wow, it's, you've done so well, you've achieved so much. And, you know, this is sort of maybe the byproduct of actually, you know, being ambitious and really loving what I do and always want to challenge myself more. But there is that element of, I think, in any kind of creative field that you're in or any field that you, you know, you've, you've, you've got, you've made it to this rung, but then you're sitting there going, okay, well now I've got all these other rungs that I, I want to like make and, yeah. and kind of tackle and, and take on. So I, a big, a big part of my life is spent really trying to be pr- present and being really grateful for mm. for what I have now because it's so easy for me to fall into the trap of like what we were talking about earlier like oh well why didn't I see that script or why didn't I why didn't I get that or gosh I really wanted that meeting or I really wanted that gig or you know well why wasn't I invited to that like mm-hmm. you can go into that mode and then I realize, you know, well, it wasn't meant for me. Like it wasn't meant for me. So yeah. get out of your ego yep. and get in back into reality. And, you know, I've just gone off on the first of many tangents, I'm sure. So. <laughs> no, but I feel that so much. And 
isn't it funny? Everything becomes relative. I, I was having this conversation with a friend just last week and talking about how there's so many things I want to do and where's the time and what's going to happen. And I was really, you know, when you get in that feedback loop and suddenly you've, you've lost your own mind to your own neuroses a little bit. Yeah. And I looked at one of my best friends and I said, like, what have I even made yet? And he looked at me and was like, are you an insane person? Yeah. What have you made? Do I have to ha tell you how many episodes of television you've made? How many movies you've made? How many episodes of your podcast you've made? How many like, people you've affected? Oh. Right. Because I was in this thing of like thinking about some of my favorite female creators. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I I just feel like I'm so busy that I'm, I'm getting in my own way of creating my own project. And what have I even made? Yeah. And he was like, it doesn't matter that you haven't written something yet. Look what you've made, uh, yeah. and I and I honestly had forgotten. Yeah, I was so in the in the critical mind <sighs> that I forgot that I'd ever made anything. It is such a trap, isn't it? It's crazy. Such the a way trap. Our brains I actually work. just had the same conversation with myself. I feel like it was yesterday. It was so. It was it was so crazy. It was like I was I was only looking at like what I wanted to do and wanted to be doing, and I was like, wow, like life is pretty great right now. Yeah, you know, and um, in terms of what we've accomplished, and you know, as an individual, and also you know, as a family, in terms of relationship and everything like that, I'm like, girl, just sit back and say thank you, okay, yeah. and take a breath, and then you know, and then move on and make a make a plan, but. I do feel like we spend so much time thinking about the future that we really don't. I mean, it's sound. I mean, we hear it all the time, but that we just we really do have to remember that, like where we came from yeah. and what we have done, and you know, it's 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 quite big. But again, I think that's like the product of being ambitious and you know being excited by what you do and doing what you love. You want to just do more of it. I love that. So I. I always like to go backwards with people, and, and I feel like we could be in forward motion for this entire conversation. <laughs> um, but I want to know, because obviously I met you already knowing you and then got, you know, the privilege of really getting to know you. Yeah. But I'm curious about who you used to be. I like to know who people were when they were kids. Were you were you a, a sensitive and and kind storyteller when you were nine or 10 years old or, or were you on a different path? I, you know, it's so funny. I always try to think like who, who I was, what was I like? And it's kind of hard to determine who I was as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a very rural town. It was 700 people um, in Iowa. Right? In Iowa. Okay. Uh, my dad was a factory worker, also farmer. My mom ran a daycare out of our home for 40 years. So there was there's always tons of children in our home. We also fostered children. And uh, so I always just being, I always remember being playful. I had two older brothers, so I hung with them all the time. So I was mm. a bit of a tomboy, I guess. But in terms of storytelling, you know, it's so interesting. It's only been maybe in the last five years did I, when I was sort of kind of reflecting on this question of like trying to even kind of figure out like how I fell into acting and things like that. Because it was never something that I, considered. And I, I remember, of all places, it's probably too much information, but I remember like being a young girl, like going into the bathroom and sitting on the toilet to use the bathroom. And I would create these scenarios in my head. like, And I would have like these, I would start talking to myself. I'd make myself cry. I'd be like, I'd get emotional. I'd laugh. And I, or I'd look in the mirror and then I, and I had no idea what I was doing. I could sound so crazy now when I think back of it, back at it. But now I'm like, oh, it all seems like it completely adds up. 
but I guess maybe that was like my safe space or private space. And then, but never, we never had cable. We never went to movies. We were like an hour from a movie theater. And then I remember I, I wasn't, I wasn't confident in physically because I had, I was long, really gangly as a, as a young kid and really uncoordinated. And so I remember one of my brothers was doing plays. And so I did plays as a kid and thinking that was like the scariest thing I ever could have done. And and then getting out there and having that feeling of like complete abandon was huge for me. It gave me so much confidence mm. as a kid. And then I remember I did those, you know, for three or four years, but that was an indication maybe that I was going down the road, but I still didn't quite get it. And then I was a very good student. I really loved I loved school. I did really well in school. I think was class president for a year or two. And I, I was very independent. I was very independent, I would say. I would say. Yeah. Mm. So cool. What is it like to grow up in a town with 700 people? What is it idyllic? Is it I, it, I just can't imagine. It is idyllic. I mean, yeah. I mean, when it's the only place that you know, right? I mean, it was we would leave the house, you know, at like, you know, eight in the morning during the summers and we, would, we wouldn't come back until like five or six or something, you mm-hmm. know. It was like you knew everybody in your town. Mm-hmm. You knew every sibling. You knew what car they drove. They, you knew their pets. I mean, there's no exaggeration. You knew everybody's business. Yeah. So in that regard, like sometimes it's a little bit tricky, you know, it was like in terms of the dating pool, it was very small. I think I had 35 (laughs) people in my graduating class. So it was a very, very small, it was like slim pickings, but like my best friend from Iowa is still my best friend. We grew Mm. up across the street from each other. You know, I still have a lot of friends that are back there that are farmers, you know, and it was very – I think one of the things that I loved and that my takeaway is and why I'm still really proud Iowa and I have so much Iowa pride is that people there are really kind and they really put community in their neighbor first. And that was just something that, you know, I saw my my parents were beautiful, wonderful examples of that, you know, taking in children that were less fortunate than us. Mm. Um, that informed my my life very, very much and my brothers as well taught us a lot of gratitude growing up. And, um, you know, that, that was something that, you know, I felt like all of my neighbors were about was just helping and really giving back to the community because we didn't have really anybody else. Um, and it also at the same time, you know, when I watched the news, which was something I did every single night with my dad, Mm. I saw a world beyond, you know, this small town and from a very young age, I felt like I wanted to go out and explore the world and, and do that. So I always had that sort of, I think, that desire to sort of spread my wings. I never felt like this was this was it for me, that this was like I was going to stay maybe in Iowa. I, I really wanted to to travel from a young age mm-hmm. and, um, and then, and, and yeah, and, and spread my wings, so to speak. So That's so cool. It's interesting because – Going to a small town for a mm. time in my childhood, I think, is part of what gave me the travel bug. Yeah. It went in reverse because I was born and raised in L.A. And we right. started – my parents, you know, early on in my dad's career, like, it's so cute when, you know, they tell you those stories. And my dad's like, yeah, you know, we were, like, kind of broke. And your mom and I would drive you up the coast and we'd stay in these little seaside motels in central California and, like, getting up to northern California. 
And they fell in love with this little town yeah. called Cambria. Yeah. And we wound up moving up there for two and a half years, I think. It's a 5,000 person, or wow. was at the time, yeah. a 5,000 person town surrounded by like cattle ranches and farms. And it was so idyllic and so beautiful. And I had that kind of childhood experience that yeah. you were talking about where you just leave your house and you go play yeah. all day and your parents yeah. aren't worried about where you are. Yeah. And there was something about the the incredible balance of those two lives yeah. for me that made me want to see everything in between. Wow. Wow. It was neat. Yeah, because you it experienced at a young age kind of the best of both worlds. Yeah. And you're like, holy cow, if I'm getting this, like what else is out there? Yeah. It's so true. I, I remember we my folks took us to Chicago for a Cubs game one year. Go Cubs. It was the first – yeah, <laughs> go Cubs, right? And it was my first time ever seeing a city. And I saw – skyscrapers, you know, as my folks call them. And I just saw like the downtown. And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, I'm going to go to college here. I'm going to, I'm going to go to college. And I, and I did, but it was like one of those things where I was like, this is a city. Like, this is a city. This is what this is like. Yeah, this is what this is like. (laughs) And that was that feeling. I was like, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got to like make this happen, you know, come hell or high water. And then, you know, of course, once I experienced the city, then I was like, well, New York City? Like, I want to move to New York City and kind of explore that. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, but it it is interesting, like, you know, what it is that – that allows you that freedom or that that confidence. Like I had confidence at a very young age and I think – Do you think that's from your parents? Oh, it's 100% from mm. my parents. It's 100% from my parents. They always said to us, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. You can set your heart to. Just you have a good head on your shoulders. I remember – I remember I was in my senior year. I was studying journalism in college in Chicago and I put myself through school and I had this overwhelming feeling one night that I needed to move to New York. And I coincidentally, you know, had just gone through a breakup. My friend was moving to law school in New York and he had a spare room. And I was like, wow, this is really it. Like I could, this, I could just, maybe this is it. I should move to New York. I should move to New York. And I called up my folks and I was like, mom, dad, I've dropped out of school. I'm moving to New York. And I'm just like bracing myself, waiting for it. And my mom said, she's like, Michelle, we've always told you to follow your heart. You have a good head on your shoulders. Mm. When are you leaving? We'll drive out there and we'll we'll move you out there. And I was like, oh my gosh. And that'll always stick with me. And it's something that, you know, I am... I'm so incredibly grateful for because it really, really did. She still says those things to, says those things to me, you know, encouraging wow. words. But I saw her live her life like that. I saw the way that she impacted other children that came into our home that had been traumatized, and she would sit them down and give them pep talks and nurture them with love. And you know, she's still in contact with those children. And or they're adults now, you know. But right. I, because of that experience, into of been able to bear witness to it. I it sounds so cheesy when I say it, but I couldn't mean it anymore. Do not ever underestimate the power of believing in a child mm. and giving them that love and just that faith and just saying you can do that. You really can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And and so I just I really owe them so much because they really lived that truth and then they, you know, extended that to to us. And I've always felt that confidence and I've always felt, 
you know, bolstered by them and their and their faith in me. That's so cool. Yeah. And then I always think like, I gotta, how am I gonna make sure like I instill the same thing into my own children? Yes. You know? Yeah, it's pretty it's it's uh it's a lot to get rid of your own things and your own anxieties, right? And then yeah. be able to to then let go and then you know, my when I was seventeen I went to Japan to model and it was my, my first time leaving the country and, you know, no parents or nothing. And my mom and dad said, you can do this. I, don't be afraid. And, wow. you're, you know, and I remember I came back and I didn't make any money, no money whatsoever. And I was devastated. And then the next year rolled around and they asked me to come back and try again. And I was like, I don't think I didn't make any money. And my mom's like, you go give it another shot. You don't give up after the first time. Go and do it again. And I came and I made money. I made tuition to pay for my college, my first year of college. And, you know, it could have been so easy for a parent to say, you know what? It didn't work out. Try another avenue. And she was just like, no, you had a good time. Just go give it another shot. You know more than you did before Mm. and go and do it. And I Thank God I did, you know. That's so, so cool. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> what was it like? Because, you know, you talk about what you got to watch with your parents mm-hmm. having your family and also being a foster family. Mm-hmm. What, what was that experience like as a kid, having other kids in and out of the home? And Yeah, it was, um, it was emotional at times, mm-hmm. obviously. You know, our, our, our folks had said to us, you know, they sat us down kind of at a very young age and said, you know, and as I said, my mom ran a daycare out of our home. So she was just a very, very much a natural nurturer. We still, she still is, we call her the baby whisperer. Mm-hmm. But they said, you know, we're going to take in children that are less fortunate than us and we're, we're going to be a family. And we said, okay. And I think um, our first foster our son, Ricky, he came to us at two and a half months old and he stayed with us for two and a half years. And, um, he ultimately went back to his parents and, and that was really traumatic for us. Mm -hmm. And that was like our first go. And we were like, wow, he was really a part of our family and we were really able to raise him. And I think like one of the things with foster care the state of it is is really unfortunate, is that the system is really set up for parents and the children are the ultimate victims. And sadly, you know, we can we can rebuil, rehabilitate and, and try to help parents as much as we can, but it's it becomes tricky because in a lot of states when the child goes back to the parents and let's say they um, relapse or the trauma happens again, the child doesn't naturally come back to your house and go to the same school and all of that, Mm. they, for purposes of them not getting too attached to the foster family, will then be sent to another foster family. So Mm. that's why you always hear of children going to multiple schools and multiple foster homes. Mm. And sadly, you know, they become then a part of the system. And so we saw that happen to my foster brother, the very first one, and sadly he became... His children also then, as he got older, became a part of the system, which is all too common, really. Mm. You know, and then we had, like, brothers and sisters that would come and stay with us. And there were – I remember there were two that stayed with us again for another two years. 
and we tried to adopt them. And my mom and dad were 45 at the time. We all went to court to try to, because the parental rights were taken away, and we said we would really like to have them be a part of our family forever. And they said, you're you're too old to my mom and dad. And they were what? 45, too old. So they fortunately were adopted out to an amazing family and we're still in contact with them today, which is great. We have great relationships. Um, so that was a really happy ending. But it's a very, you know, there. it's such a traumatic thing to see a child come into your home in the middle of the night. You see really the impact that you can have in a child's life, but you also, as a result of that, it's incredibly humbling and mm. you have a tremendous amount of gratitude for what you've been given. I I remember my mom all the time growing up, I'm sorry, I'm a little emotional because it's mm. saying you are so lucky to be born into this family, yeah. into, into this country, into this time and place. And she would repeatedly say that to me, and I, and it's always stuck with me. But I mean, it was always very clear to me that mm-hmm. like there was there was no there was fate that I got to be a part of this family. Mm-hmm. You know, when I could see firsthand that you know the choices that there was no choice for so many others, and so that it was it was really important to to nurture what we have and to have gratitude. There was no complaining in our house, anything of that matter. There was, you know, it was it was a beautiful, beautiful gift to mm-hmm. to have my mom and dad give us that. That's so incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They really are. What cool humans. They're really cool humans. They're really cool humans. And and you said that your dad was a factory worker and mm-hmm. a farmer. Yeah. So does that mean that you grew up on a farm? So I grew up about seven my our family farm was about seven miles outside of where we in the town that we grew up in. Got it. So we would do, you know, my dad would do the chores and do all the thing, but in the summers that was our job. We would detassel, pick up rock, walk beans. Like those were my summer. What does detassel mean? Well, detasseling is when you when the corn is it's like middle of summer when it starts to pollinate, you walk through oh, the rows yeah. and you take you depollinate basically the corn and it allows it to, to grow. And I'm not even quite sure, but it was, it was detasseling. It was a great way to meet boys <laughs> from like other towns, you know. But those were all like, those were those, those were our summer jobs. Yeah. You know, yeah. That's super Or we'd, cool. you know, pick up shit and, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. When I lived up in Cambria, I used to ride at a barn right outside of town. Yes. And I... I mucked stalls. I like I had to earn part of my way yes. into that barn and onto those horses and you know that was very cool. My parents were like, "Yeah, we could give you something, but yeah. it doesn't work like that here. Yeah. Like, you have to pay your dues." And weirdly, even yeah. now, the smell of horse manure is oh one of my, my favorite. Oh it's my so gosh. comforting to Isn't me. Isn't that amazing? Like hay yeah. and manure and yeah, I can that, smell it right now. <laughs> oh, like the way that old saddles smell. Yeah. I just I love it. Wow, it's yeah. like that sensory. Yep. I always get that now when I I rarely have it, but I was somewhere recently and somebody was mowing a lawn and I lost my marbles. Pete was like, "What is going on with you?" I was like. The fresh cut grass. I just I mean, like summer, like nineteen, like eighty nine, ninety one. I'm like, oh my god, shorts tanked. Like I could, I was just there. I was there in yep. my backyard, and it's just so amazing. And it's the smell of fresh cut grass is 
one of the best smells I've ever smelled. Yeah. And it just conjures up just the nostalgia of, of all those summer memories of being a kid and, you know, chlorinated hair and, you yep. know, the whole the whole thing. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I just love it. That's so cool. <laughs> so when we talk about small town, that like beautiful small town culture and also farm culture, there's a question I have to ask yeah. you. Yeah. Is it true that you won blue ribbons as a hot oh, wrestler when you were God. 13? T- it's so crazy. Talk I mean, to me about I'm this. almost like, I'm almost like, I'm, I, I, by the way, if anybody from PETA is listening, I am sorry. I had no idea. I was a young kid. I don't even know if they still do it now. But at our county fair, um, they had, I mean, uh, the pin was basically the size of this room. So I would say it was about 20 feet in diameter. And it was a round metal pin filled with mud. And and it had a big old barrel right in the center of it. And they, you would get in there with my best girlfriend, Maria, would jump in there with a hog. And whoever could basically pick up the hog and get the hog in the barrel no in the pen in the quickest amount of time would get the blue ribbon and we got a blue ribbon i think we got second place like maybe the following year whatever it was but it was like that is like total small town it was like either 4h or you go wrestle a hog or yep. it was the tractor pole it was the um what's the what's the thing with the rope the rope pole yep. i mean it was all of those things so yeah, that was that was now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so on PC to do those poor hogs. It's so like I don't know. Yeah, if but it was still a different it. time. It was like, a different time. If you were doing it today, I might be like, Michelle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> but you look back Michelle, and you're like, yeah. I know more now than I knew then. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But totally exactly like indicative of like small town, you know, America, you know. Yeah, and there really there is a nostalgia to it, you know. Totally. It's like yeah, I don't know. Because I, I, I did it. I, yeah. I did 4-H when oh, I was in Northern California, too. Yeah, I just, I get it. The, and it does feel nostalgic and sentimental. Yes. And, and kind of amazing, despite yeah. how we grow as we learn. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. 100%. And, and another thing that I love that you did, you, because I, I know we talked about you going to college in Chicago, but before yeah. that, you were doing speech and debate in high school. Yes. And were you also doing theater or do you think it was more the speech and debate that was leading you into that sort of performative stuff? You know what it was? It was our drama club teacher also did speech and debate. Oh, cool. And so I think it was just a natural thing. But it was one of those things where we would all jump in a Suburban and we'd drive down to Iowa City, to the University of Iowa, and we would perform there. And I I did always well. I mm. always did would place first place. And again, still didn't have a clue mm. that I was meant to do, like that this was a natural direction. And I will say my cousins, because I have a lot of female cousins, and I remember a one Christmas, it was shortly after Steel Magnolias came out, which is kind of my favorite movie ever. So good. So good. All those powerhouse pink women. Pink and pink. Oh, Ooh. my gosh. Never get over and it. And my cousin 
would play, I'd play Sally Field and she'd play Olympia Dukakis and my other cousin would play, you know, the Julia Roberts or Daryl Hand and we'd all, but we would always do the, the, the funeral, the funeral scene. She's like, I just want to, you know, I just want to cry. You know, I won't do yeah. it, but, but it's that, you know, I could just hit someone, you know, yeah, hit a Weezer, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, oh my, and we would perform that scene for all my aunts and uncles or like, you know, 12 of them. And my cousin and I, oftentimes, she's like, it was so obvious you were going to be an actor then. And I was like, did you know that? She was like, I don't know, maybe, but like, you don't grow up really in a town of 700 people yeah. thinking like that's even a possibility. I grew up in LA and didn't think yeah, that was a yeah, possibility exactly. for me. Exactly. The literal town where movies are made. And I yeah. was like, I'm obviously going to be a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was the thing. I was like, well, you know, and maybe because I, I was like, studied journalism, like, you know, my parents were big on current events and all, you know, obviously they were like, I, but I was like investigative journalism. I'm going to write the, the, the wrongs of the world mm-hmm. and, and I'm going to be on TV. So maybe that was like the, the thing, I don't know, mm-hmm. but, but it was, it was definitely headed in that, in that direction. Mm-hmm. And I, without even sort of realizing it, you know, when you think about your passion for journalism and the irony being, I thought I was going to be a doctor. Then I was like, maybe I'll be an actor. Then I went to journalism school. Yeah. Also. Like wow. our parallels are so crazy. Yeah, wow. Um, but was was your bent toward debate and journalism? You know, you talk about always watching the news with your dad. Yeah. Was was your family political? Were you, were you guys communicating about that stuff, or was it more on TV? No, we would definitely communicate about mm. it. We still communicate about it. But it's so interesting because we're all very impassioned people, and we're all you know on different sides of the aisle, and. And my folks were always independents and they mm. just, they vote differently. But it was also very like private. And I don't know if it's an Iowa thing or I don't know if it's just my family thing. But like my folks were always like, you never ask how somebody votes. Like it's like you'd never ask how much somebody makes or they're, you know what I mean? There are like just mm-hmm. certain things that are just like, so we would sit around and we debate everything under the sun with my brothers as well. And, you know, but it was, we, whenever it came down to voting or anything like that, we never really knew who went where, you know? Wow. So I think it was for me, I just always, I just, I always felt very confident in about expressing myself and my points of view. And I think like everyone in my family did that Mm -hmm. and pretty in a, I would say in a respectful way, unless alcohol got it involved, but that wasn't like when I was a kid. <laughs> and now it's just like when you go home for Christmas and, you know, you have too many glasses of wine. But but yeah, I think it was just like one of those things that I just felt like, I felt like very confident was something that I could do and do well at, yeah. you know. And then when I finished, when I didn't finish um, and I moved to New York and I was trying to find myself there, I basically said, I said, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to get my degree. I'm not going to like come this far, you know, and not finish what I started. Like, I'm, mm. I don't know what it is, but I still have to finish this. And then when I started acting, as I hadn't studied or anything like that formally, when I started working, I realized I started writing about my characters and my each role, I think it was like in Gone Baby Gone was the first time it happened where I realized I was I was writing the who, what, when, where, why, and how mm. about my character. And that was like a moment where I like, I burst into tears because it was like coming full circle wow. for me 
where I was like, oh my gosh, it wasn't all for naught. Like, it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. this was just leading me to this moment where this was just supposed to be a part of my journey, you know? And so, and I still use it today. Like, I still use that. That's like kind of my my little blueprint when I start to dig into a role or a character. I start writing their their backstory and, you know, the the, the lead line and all, all of that. That is so Yeah, cool. and then that leads to other que- – then that adds to, like, journalistic questions that I want to ask about that character. Do you save all of that from every film I show? do. I do have some of it some, somewhere. Oh, good. Somewhere. Pete, Pete always asks me. Sometimes I just throw away my scripts and I've got all the notes on no, like, Why do you do Michelle. that? Why do you do that? I'm like, I don't know. And then I do sort of regret it because there are a few scripts that I really wished I would have kept – along the way, but I, I sort of also feel like it's like, oh, okay, that's done. You know what I mean? Mm. And I was like, and it's a big old mess and a ha- part of it's all ripped up and, you know. So I did think about it the other day because I just wrapped a project and I was like, I just need to, I'm just going to put it up there in that shelf and I'm going to try to hold on to yeah, it. Yeah, you need to just have a bin. I like just need to have a bin and, and keep a box. Those I need in. to be more organized like that. Because they're fun to go back and look at. Totally. Totally. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So how did the transition happen? Because you moved to New York you're modeling at the time, yes. which, by the way, must have been crazy in that sort of moment. It was. You know, I'd, when I was modeling in Chicago, it was like Target, Montgomery Ward. It was all like the catalog stuff. Yeah. And then when I moved to New York, I really was barely making any money, barely making ends meet. And I was still just – I was doing – I was still doing a little bit of catalog, doing a little bit of magazine, a little bit of runway. It was a little bit of everything – but it was like clear, like this was not going to be my career. And so I was mm. really struggling. And then I got a couple of commercials. I got a secret deodorant commercial and a Tampax commercial and a clean and clear commercial. And I was like, oh, wow, those are great. And then my agent said, listen, there's this television show that's trying to cast a supporting actor. It's a show called Young Americans. You've had good luck getting commercials. Why? It's just come through the modeling agency because they hadn't found anybody for whatever reason. She's like, why don't you go in? She's like, what do you, you don't have anything to lose. I was like, "Mm, okay. So I went in and I got the job and, and then like left the next day for Baltimore to go shoot it. And it was Kate Bosworth, Ian Summerhalder, Kate Minig was on the show. I mean, we were like babies. Yeah. And then really what the, the big transition for me was, was like, wow, I have a job. Now maybe I should take this a little bit more seriously. Maybe this is what I'm meant to do. Mm. And I had my agent um, back in Chicago at the time who ran a commercial agency. I said, will you call some agencies so I can get repped, you know, possibly in in New York and maybe start acting or auditioning? And she set me up with four meetings. And the last one was my – the agent that I still have today. I knocked on her door. Wow. And uh, I said, listen, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think maybe I'm meant to do this. And I said, I have a job. So I had that going for me at least, you know, something that she could potentially probably take commission on. And so she said, well, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. And that was really, and shortly after that, things started to pick up and kind of move at a really kind of decent pace after that. That is so cool. Yeah. So- did you have to move for that show or were you working in New York? No, I was working. We were, it was shooting in Baltimore. So I just took a train there. Oh, I think cool. I shot six episodes, still had no idea what I was doing. And then the show ended up getting canceled after a month. 
or not a month, but after a season. But by that time, it had the agent, and I was auditioning for other things. Right. And so then what prompted the move to L.A.? Getting pregnant. Getting pregnant with our daughter about 11 years ago, and then my husband, being from Australia, we wanted to be closer to our family there. Mm. So because it's a long journey from New York and we try yeah. to we try to go back once possibly twice a year if, if schedule allows but we ended up having our daughter here at home and then we kept our place in New York for a couple of years thinking I'm like well we're still going to go back to New York and then I think when she was about 6 or 8 months old we went back to our apartment there and we were like this place is a dump it's so small <laughs> it's a walk up oh, you know yeah. what i mean i'm like oh my i can't God. carry the stroller what the, floor like, was your apartment on we were on the fourth floor okay my first apartment yeah. in new york was a fifth floor walk up oh. in the west village that was so much smaller than this office. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Yeah, right? Oh, my God. I'm like, how? And I loved it. And we loved but, it. Oh, my God. And, and by the way, we'd forgotten, actually, yeah. like, how small it was until we had, like, the baby shit and everything. And then I was like, okay. He's like, can we get rid of it now? And I was like, yes, we can get rid of it now. Oh, that's and that's funny. when we just finally, you know, made the move here. And Did you and meet Pete it. in New York, though? We met in a bar 20 years ago. Wow. We met in a bar. I It was total fluke that we met. I hadn't been out for a year because I just moved to New York. I was, I was like deep in trying to find like what I wanted to do in my life. I remember I, somebody mentioned the artist's way. I don't know if you know. If mm-hmm. Okay, right? So that was the first time I ever started to do any kind of self-exploration about who I was because mm. I was really at a crossroads in my life. Yeah. So I remember I spent my whole first year just kind of going on castings and doing this book every night and really doing a lot of self-discovery and work and everything like that. And in fact, I found that book that I did keep. And looking back at that, it was, wow, talk about appreciating where you've come from and really allowing me to have gratitude and going like, girl, you did it. Like you started here. You started right here with like answering that really hard question that you never would have asked yourself. And now you ask yourself all the hard questions and you force yourself to answer them and answer to them. And right. So it was like a real, like a real moment of like self-gratitude and, and that, and I recommend that book to a lot of people, by the way, still like that are at a crossroads in their life because I feel like, you know, it was really instrumental in, in kind of finding who the direction I wanted to take my life. But it was one night I was walking out on a Friday night, walking and casting, coming home, and this gal pulls me into her store on Ludlow and was like, have a glass of champagne. I just opened up my store. And I said, oh, okay, I'll have a glass of champagne. And then I had two glasses of champagne. She's like, we're going out tomorrow night. You're coming with me. What's your address? I'll pick you up. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was like, you know, had the the bubbly, like, okay. And uh, and then she came by the following night, knocked on my, buzzed my, my place. And I was like, actually, no, I'm not actually going out. I was in my sweats. And my roommate, who's a stylist, was going, you're absolutely going out. I was like, I don't even know this chick. I just met her at her store opening. I have no idea. Yeah. She's like, I'll put you in a really cute outfit. So she put me in a really cute outfit, my stylist friend. And I go out to this, to this too cool for school bar, right? Where you have to like, not, there's not even a door, right? So in the meatpacking district. And uh, I walk in there, I'm sitting there, I'm having a beer with her. I have no idea who she is. And about 10 minutes after I'm there, I'm just sitting there 
like this is awkward. In walks my husband with a group of our friends, and I, I, I just, I did, something just hit me over the head. I mean, so not even my type. <laughs> it's going to sound so ridiculous to anybody who's listening, but like he had like a mohawk and like a rat tail and Levi's. Pete? Yes. No. Like like this Vivian Westwood T-shirt that said like "Let It Rock," but the Levi's with cowboy boots, and I was like, oh, "Who is that guy?" I mean, it just like it was like boom. Like, I'm sorry, I, saw I will stars. never recover from the fact that Pete had a rat tail. I have to what? wait. I have to find a picture and send it. No, to I you. need You're to see it. You I'm going to make it his color ID yeah, on my yeah, phone. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I'm yeah, dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh it's so crazy. It's so crazy. And then basically. He worked his way over to sit next to me, and he started talking. Of course, he's Australian. Oh great God. accent. And he had me laughing within minutes, and that's the one thing that I love about him. I love about any person is a great sense of humor. Yeah. And then that, w- that was basically it. That was basically – we had a, like a lovely little courtship. And, uh, and so, you know, our relationship was awesome in the way that it started because he knew me when I was like doing a Tampax commercial. Basically. And so we've been able to appreciate and help and support each other and watch each other grow in all the ebbs and flows of our relationship and our careers. So we've been able to, in in parenthood and family. So I feel really lucky to have met him kind of at the beginning because he's been a real, he's just been the ultimate like, like rock for, for us and, you know, and I for him. So that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. God, that's so cool. <laughs> I just can't knowing Pete now, he's like the coolest. He's super stylish. He also happens to have a hidden talent as a DJ. Yes. <laughs> like his taste is so sick. Yeah. The yeah. fact that he could have ever had a rat tail. I know, and really pulled it off. Destroys me. And really pulled it oh off. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> okay, wait. I, my world is rocked. I know. I'm, I'm going to send you a picture. I'm like trying to keep us on the timeline. So you come out here, you you know, you mentioned what it was like to begin your character breakdown on yeah. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. Like what a major moment. What was that like? How did the audition happen? What's it like to be working with Robert Downey Jr.? Well, that is such a good question because there's a great story behind that and a great learning lesson that really has Ooh. shaped my um, my entire career. I like a learning lesson. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the first time I got that, I was living in New York and I was coming out here every now and then for auditions and things like that. And yeah. I got the audition for Kiss Kiss Bang Bang to read initially with Shane Black the writer-director, and I remember I was staying at a hotel up in – it was used to be the Renaissance. I don't know if it still is over there in Hollywood and Highland. But I remember it was about a half hour um, for me to – before I went to Warner Brothers, and I was looking at all the scenes. There's probably about three scenes, and um, I was like, there's no way I can do this. Like, there's absolutely no way. I have no idea what I'm doing. I I was – it was – felt way in over my head. And I was like, that's it. I'm just going to call Bonnie and cancel the audition. And I call her office back in New York and her assistant says, okay, one second, let me grab her. She's on another call. Just hold, just hold for a minute. And as the music was playing, I was like, oh no, this is like fear. And I have to do this. I have to face this fear. You can do this. You have to face this fear. It was like a total, like, as I said earlier, sitting on the toilet moment where I was like, no, you have to do blah, 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 blah. I was going to call it out of body, but on whatever. The phone, right? Yeah, exactly. Sorry. And before she got on the phone, I hung up and I just got, I went straight downstairs. I got in the car and I drove before I changed my mind. 
and the audition was – it went really well. And then I didn't hear anything for like two months. And then I was shooting The Born Supremacy in Berlin and Whoa. I got a call and they were like, you need to get on a plane tonight and go back and audition with Robert Robert Downey Jr. And so I flew all night back here. And then I, I, I was, remember sitting in the parking lot of Warner Brothers going, oh, my God, this is so – it was like 10 o'clock at night. I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. I went in and um, auditioned and he was so amazing and it was a great audition. And then I got the job – and I'd fly back and finish, and they were like, okay, now you're coming back, and you know, and you're going to dye your hair blonde. I was like, okay, and then we're going to start the next day, but we're going to do the read-through like two nights later. And I do the read-through. I do such a bad job in the read-through that I end up walking into room, one of the offices, after the read-through, and the person who was discussing me was – their back was to me and they were like, how are we going to find somebody else this last minute? We're starting in the morning. Like it was like they were going, like they were considering like firing me because as people don't know it, like before you do a movie, you sit around a table and you just read the entire script. By the way, which is such a horrible, archaic thing. It's so crazy. No one performs well seated around a table, cold reading. It's horrible. It's the worst thing. Matthew McConaughey, I think, told me he lost a job when he did it. And I was like, oh, brother, don't even get me started on it. He's like, so give him nothing. Because we were doing True Detective read-throughs. You know, he's like, just don't, just sit there, just like monotone, don't give him nothing. Don't give him nothing. I was like, Okay, I was sitting next to him, so I was like, if Matthew's going to do it, I guess I can do it too. (laughs) But it was like – it was one of those things where I was like, oh my gosh. And I remember like that first day on set, it was like the next day, I was freaking out. I had been up till 2 in the morning getting my hair blonde. I didn't even know who I was. And I remember Downey coming up to me that next morning, and he was like, you're you're like olive oil, but like Popeye. You're – you're, you got this. And he gave me the biggest hug. And I think the first scene was like a scene outside of the standard hotel and I'm tucking his tag or whatever. And, and we had a great day and I'd found kind of the character right in just like a moment, but it was like that day I was like this, they're going to fire me at the end of the day. I'm not, but like for whatever reason, like, I mean, obviously Robert's such a great actor, right? But he, I just followed his lead and, and it was an amazing, it was a breakthrough performance for me. It changed my life, you know, that Mm -hmm. whole opportunity. Yeah, he taught me how to improv, like everything. And he had just come through what he had come through. And this was his first or his second film, you know, after that. So he was he was in such a healthy place. And he oh, really after took, getting oh. sober. Wow. Yeah, he was completely sober in a really healthy place and really just took me under his wing. And he gave me so many, such great advice. Like, so he's like, you're, no, like, he'd be like, you're really talented. He was like, just stick with it, stay like, he's like, this sounds so stupid, but stay who you are and, you know, don't get caught up in it. And like, you know, he was, he was really like, he's, was incredibly nurturing to me at that time. Yeah. Yeah. God, what a gift. What like, a gift. The image coming into my head while you're telling that story yeah. is like, if you got to learn to dance with Fred Astaire. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, to have that a leader like that. I remember one day he was like our third day and he was like, okay, we're going to improv this scene. And I was like, what, what is that? I have no idea what that is. And he was like, it means we're not going to say the words that Shane wrote and action. Right. <laughs> and I was like, uh, and, and, and I remember like he just started riffing and then I was like, I started riffing and I don't think any of it made the film, 
But it was so empowering. It was so Mm -hmm. cool Mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, just get out of your head and just have fun with it. You know, and I wouldn't even say I'm still like a great improver, but it was like I remember when like Ben Stiller and Heartbreak Kid was like, okay, we're going to improv. And it's like, okay, okay, and I'm slowly dying a slow death. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, it never gets less scary to improv. It never gets less scary. That's exactly it's right. It's terrifying yeah. every time. It's terrifying every time. And fortunately, if you're just with somebody who's a bit better at it than you are yep. and you just follow their lead and just stay with them, like it's okay. But you will never catch me like initiating like, hey, let's just improv it. Like, yeah. I'll never be that gal. <laughs> you know what I think broke me of some of that fear? I got yeah. to work on this incredible Netflix show called Easy. Mm. And Joe Swanberg, you know, is the writer mm. and director that of the show. so good. God, it's so good. But it's mostly improv. It is. And Joe is so brilliant because what he does is he outlines the whole episode. He writes an outline for every scene right. with a couple of lines of dialogue that he wants in it. And the rest is up to the actors. And it is the most terrifying experience I've ever had, but also the most fun I've ever had on a set because it's an entire episode wow. of television wow. that's just up to us in the scene. And you get to talk over each other. We talk like, over <laughs> each other. We cross cover every scene. It's like so authentic. It's so raw, whatever. And it's funny because it it unlocked something for me. I think I, being on, you know, you know what it's like. You, yeah. You're on a network show. You do 22 episodes a season. Yeah. You can't say one word of dialogue yeah. wrong. And I always wanted a little more freedom, but you get, especially I think for women, we get so encouraged to be a good girl, yeah. be a good soldier, yeah, do the yeah, good, exactly. you know, stay within the lines. And you know? God, yeah. that show like blew a lid off for me. And then just recently this year, I was working on This Is Us. I felt so bad for the audience, by the way. I'm, I need to like publicly take a second and apologize to people who watch that show because I knew we were pulling a dirty, dirty trick. Um, there's this whole storyline yeah. with sweet, dear Justin Hartley yeah. where they're like trying to figure out who the mom is of, of Kevin as his character, yeah. of Kevin's baby or child that you meet in yeah. like the forward flashes. And the producer of the show, Isaac, was like, hey, we're doing all these big teases to who's Kevin's baby mama. And no one will believe that you're going to come on our show for one episode. Would you come and do this one episode with us? And can we announce that you're coming back to recur through the end of the season so people think it's you and they don't see the twist coming? And I was like, oh, this no. is so evil. And oh also, I God. love it. Oh, my God. Like, I'm, I'm mischievous. I grew up around all the yeah. boys, too. I'm like, okay. fuck yeah. Like, let's <laughs> play a trick. But I did feel so bad. But we had so much fun because Justin also loves to improv. Yeah. And we just... We made up all these jokes. We threw things. We were shooting with John Legend. We like did this whole bit with John Legend. By the way, none of it made the episode because it's a network show and like that's not going to happen. But good God, we had so much fun shooting it and just like messing around at the top and the end of scenes. And and there was something about having fallen in love with the improv part of it that now – it's not less scary, but I feel more comfortable with yes. the fear, and yes. I'm so into it. Have you ever done theater? Not since I've been out of school. Yeah. I did theater all through school. Okay, okay. But, God. Because I feel like that's kind because I haven't done it professionally. Yeah. Really, and I sort of feel like that's that's kind of that opportunity. Mm. Like, every night's kind of different. Like, so you have true. to kind of say – the dialogue, but you, but it's different every, every single time. night, depending yeah. on like 
maybe you do something a little bit differently in your body language or, you know, your action. Mm -hmm. But like you've got that opportunity every single night to have it be something completely authentic and new to that experience to that day. So what you're saying is we should do a play. I really want to do a play. Let's do a play. I would love it. It would be amazing. I would love it. I feel like that, like I won't feel like my career as an actor will feel complete unless I really explore that and really go down that route because I feel like it will be the most confronting fear, which is the thing which I was talking about. Like that's what fuels me. I give you butterflies. Same, 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 same. same. Oh my God. It's same. Because it's like, I'm like, I can't imagine anything more daunting, more nerve wracking, but yet I, I know for sure it will be the most fulfilling that it would ever that I would ever have in terms of a, an experience. Okay, like so let's experience. find the place. Okay, okay, done. Okay, we have a homework assignment. <laughs> I'm so excited. Just put that out there. I love it. Love it. I'm so curious as we talk about this, you know, finding the the joy and the fear because it is. I think people also assume if you're an actor, you're like wildly self confident, and they don't realize that we're actually afraid all the time. Yes. Like our business breeds this consistent fear of can I do it? What if today's the day I can't mm-hmm. do it? What if what if this is the last job? What if like it's it's kind of insane. And I and I wonder how you how you overcome that and how in your career, and I imagine, as you said, mm-hmm. like seminal moment, kiss, kiss, bang, bang changes everything. Yeah. But how do you then start to choose where you're going next? How do you wind up doing Mission Impossible? What's it like to go to work with Tom freaking yeah. Cruise? You know, like, yeah. what's happening to you at this yeah, point? Yeah, I know. Well, the one of the very first things, like, I like to share with people and people that are auditioning and, you know, starting out and things like that is I can't stress enough how important it is to – Always remember that they invited you into the room is the first mm. important thing. So oh, they I love that. Yeah, that you've been invited. I have a friend who's auditioning for Berkeley School of Music, you know, I think maybe this week or next week. But I said, remember, like you've made it this far. Like they want you to get the job. They, it, they, they want their job to be done for the day. Mm-hmm. Like so they It's like been, they want you to prove them right. Yeah. They exactly. have this hunch about you. Exactly. Just prove them and right. I always feel like we give our power away Mm. so much. So that's a real number one. And I still use that today because I don't audition as much as I used to, but I still go in for meetings and, and various things where I feel like I need to breathe through it, embrace myself and remember that, you know, I deserve to be in the room, Mm. you know? So I think first and foremost, that's really important for auditioning. I think also it's, it, there's a lot of value in just feeling like, you know, if you know something's really over your head or, you know, you're not quite ready for it yet, you can still make an impression by introducing yourself and having an, a nice, authentic, you know, exchange with the casting director or somebody mm. else just so maybe you'll get invited back into the room. They'll remember you, whatever right. whatever that is, and always, always, always be off book. Because what I find, what I love most about acting, and I'm sure you do too, is all the moments between the lines. So, if you're looking down at your page to see what your next line is and you're not allowing yourself the opportunity to react to the line that's being read to you, mm. you've lost half of like your mojo right there. That's so interesting. So it's so important to know the material back to front so that you can always have your pages in your hand, right? Oh, I love but to, to have be a page able, in my hand. right? Just just <laughs> as like a safety blanket, yeah. totally always. But be able to react to the line that you're that some mm-hmm. because that's it. It's like 
we we know as human beings, like it's everything that's not said, you know, we don't, most people don't go through life communicating all of our feelings. It's like, Mm. it's the subtle nuance of like a blink or, you know, the way that your, your lip quivers or, you know, whatever it is, or your brow furrows. It's like those subtle moments that, that will set you apart. So I think those are just really practical ways of going about it. You know, that was, um, you know, the mission series that was, that was a crazy experience because I had actually gotten um, cut out of a film called Constantine that I did with Keanu Reeves years ago. And, um, you know, I was I was only worried that they were going to ask for the money back, basically, because I had no idea how any of that worked. Mm. Got cut out of the movie. About six months later, a year later, I get a call from J.J. Abrams because the audition for that or the scenes, the cut deleted scenes – Somebody gave to J.J. Abrams and said, like, this 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 actress, she's amazing. Like, you Whoa. should check her out. He was like, I want her to come in and audition for – oh, my God. How did I just uh, – Julia. Julia Mead. And mm-hmm. so I went in. I worked with the casting director for four days. Tom was doing reshoots on War of the Worlds. I remember turning up to Universal. It, he comes down from, like, his wires or whatever – comes over, introduces himself. I'm slowly dying a slow death because I'm now I've just met Tom Cruise. And he's like, he was like, Steven, come over here. Steven, come over here. It's Steven Spielberg Woo! sitting there. And he's like, so you guys got an audition. That's great. That's great. That's great. And I'm just dying right now. I've just met like two I'm sweating heroes. To tell this story. Dying, dying, dying. I go, we go into JJ and Tom and I go into his uh, trailer and we have the audition. And we, there's like three scenes and it's so crazy it goes so well. We work on it for probably 30 minutes. What a I, gift that they were willing to work yeah, with. Yeah, I you worked also. with the casting director. I forget her name. Wow. He's still JJ only works with her still, I think, exclusively. But yeah, I worked with her for two, for a day or two just to make sure that, like, you know, and I was like, wow, they really want me to do this well and 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 do it well. And it was um, one of those things that I was working on a film called North Country. I went back. My husband was was with me. It was Easter Sunday. I'd just come out of a cowboy boot shop where there were like $1,200 pair of boots that I really, really wanted. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not going to get them. They're too expensive. We're walking across this place in Santa Fe, the square there. I still see it. I can like, feel it there. And my phone rings, and it's Tom and JJ. And they were like, how are you doing today, Michelle? And I was like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. They're like, how would you like to do Mission Impossible 3? Because we really want to do Mission Impossible 3 with you. And I was like, yes, 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 yes. And I had a total moment with my husband. He was there oh with me. Oh, my God. Hung up the phone. I turned on my heels, went back, <laughs> bought those fucking boots. I was like, I got them. I still have them, you know, in my, in, my, uh, in my closet. But it's like one of those things where – those start those moments give you that courage, right? Or those moments like go like, wait, I've been in scary positions before. Mm. I've I've had to audition and confront my fear mm. ten times over. And it just takes me reflecting on that and go, Yeah, you did it. Like do it again. Like do it again. You did it, do it again. And it's that. those building blocks, right? Of yeah. of moving forward. But I'm still challenged. I still get faced with fear, you know? Yeah. So, well, and it's always scary to feel like you have to prove yourself. Yeah. That never becomes. Do you think less that's a female thing? Do you think that's a female thing? Do you think guys feel that is. I don't think as they feel much? it as much. Yeah. But I certainly think they feel it in their own yeah. ways. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me is when 
in groups of friends like ours, people really get into the depth of a conversation. Yeah. And then the guys go, oh, it's that much more intense for you guys? Yeah, yeah. And we're all sitting around going, hello? Yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you know, I, exactly. I, I know we all have it in our own ways, but but women are expected to kind of prove themselves and perform on so many more levels. Yeah, yeah. And then you see, you know, the data science that – women won't ask for a raise or a promotion until they're 90% sure they can do it or yes. 92%. And men ask when they hit 40%. Yes. And also for you know? a, jo- a job, like applying for a job, yes. they make sure that they're well qualified before they even apply. apply. And guys are like, I could probably do that. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's yeah. That, like, that's, that to me is a, an alarming statistic. And when you think about that, there's a 52% yeah. confidence gap. Yes. You realize that there's just more pressure on us societally. Yeah. And that's not to say it's not hard out there for men, but the compounding difficulty for women is real. Yeah, it is. That and then you're going, oh, well, what about child? And what about going back to work? And, yep. you know, all all of those things. Yeah. All of those things. What was that shift like for you too? You know, being a mom, working, you do all of these enormous movies, you, the landscape starts changing, Mm. TV gets so good. Yeah. You do True Detective, you work on the path. It's like incredible shows that you went out there and did. Yeah. Was that a conscious choice to make that transition or was it just that the roles were so good that you wanted them? Just the roles were so good that Mm. I wanted them. You know, people always say, it's a good question. It's a fair question. Did parent, did parenthood change you in any way? And I always like really try to ask myself that. And I, like in terms of creatively what I'm looking for or things mm. like that, I don't think it has. I, I'm still kind of selfish, creatively selfish in the sense that like I really just respond to material yeah. that I haven't done before that's challenged me, you know, and I think that, you know, certainly emotionally, probably my children have have deepened me, Mm. you know, I can tap into other things that I can use certainly from having had children, but, but I'm always just still on this, on the search for like two of the roles that I really love that I'm probably most proud of are two indie films, Mm. Trucker and Fort Bliss. And though they have like parent themes, and one of them, I was not a parent when I did one. And then when I was a parent, um, it was kind of the double standard of leaving to go and um, be of service to your country and the military and how women, you know, you know, if a, if a man goes to leave and fight for his country, he's a hero. But if a woman goes to leave and uh, fight for a country, she's a bad, she's a bad parent. She's a bad mm. mom. Mm-hmm. And it's really about the stigma. And that movie I'm extraordinarily proud of. So I sort of that, that, that informed me a lot mm. as a parent, I suppose. But I'm always just looking for whatever it is. If it's like a great action film, if it's a comedy, if it's small, tiny film. I feel like we're also in a great time, as you know, that we have all these different mediums to explore in terms of, you know, there's so much content out there, you know. So it's just finding the quality, yeah. you know. And fortunately, we have a good family sort of situation where my husband can travel if need be. And, you know, we've got help and my parents are really present that if, you know, if it's a situation where I have to leave for like three weeks, if we can bear it as a family, then I'll go and sort of do that and kind of bang it out, so to speak, you know? Yeah.
like working on the first season of True Detective? I just want to know because I loved it. Yeah, so much. you know, <laughs> it, I, it was it was actually really incredible. It was, uh, it was one an of those amazing season. Of it was television. an amazing season, and I and I will say that that it's it's rare that you experience your experience on set is very reflective of the final product because. It felt very intense what we were doing. It felt really strong. Mm. It felt incredibly cinematic and powerful and kind of thrilling and dark and scary and yet just really like grounded and raw. Mm. And it was intense. I was five months pregnant when I wrapped that show. So it was a really, it was kind of an emotional sort of journey being on it. And then when I saw the final product, I wasn't surprised about sort of the acting or whatever because everybody was so tremendous in it. But I was so like w- the the I, the appreciation that I had from for the production design for the yes. music for like like everything was singing. I mean the locations, the counts, locations. I mean, and by the way, we drove probably in easily an hour or more every day to a location. It was like a different location. It was real. The only place that wasn't a location was a set that we built where we did the interrogation scenes, but everything else, we were on the road. It was a really hard shoot, one of the hardest. And yet the finished product was incredible. And Carrie is an extraordinary director. And Woody I had worked with before. Matthew is amazing. Nick Pizzolatto is an incredible writer. I mean, he was he was fantastic. So it was just one of those really, really special moments and shows. And that was an interesting thing because I remember when I offered that, I was offered that, I was in the middle of shooting something. And it was the first time that like the TV was kind of happening. And Mm. there was really like that, what? So Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey are doing a TV show? Like what? On HBO? And and then I remember them, Carrie, I, I FaceTimed with Carrie Fukunaga, and he said, I'll give you, I'm going to give you three episodes. He said, I'll give you, like, so you can kind of figure out who the character is, and then I'm going to give you the turning point for the character, which was mm-hmm. the 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 love scene, the sex scene, I guess, that Maggie and, and Rust have. And uh, when I read that, when I, if I said if I would have read the first two, I, I said I told him I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have done the show because it just felt like she was kind of the housewife and I was just like, I don't know if this Mm -hmm. is right. But when I saw the turning point of that, that scene where I was like, I was like, oh no, she's, she's doing this out of self-preservation because he'll no longer like, and that was my whole inspiration for that. And I Mm -hmm. said, okay, I'll do it. You know, what I loved about it as a viewer was to your point, watching a representation of a woman who doesn't have many options for agency in her life, who figures out how to take it. Oh my God. Whether it's appropriate or not, whether it's the right decision or not, it's a real thing. You know, when you feel like a caged animal, what are your options to take your power back? And I was like, I mean, like primal screaming at the TV. I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was that. I'm so glad that you got it because Mm -hmm. it was so interesting, the perspective. Because I remember the show really took off and then all of a sudden I was doing all these interviews and... It was so interesting that that a lot of people didn't see it that way. Women, on the other hand, saw it. They could feel that. They mm-hmm. saw that. And I was like, no, she wasn't – I was like, you know, a lot of people would kind of jump to the, the – I can't believe she would do that. I was like, no, 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 you're missing the point. You're missing it. Entirely. Like she was self-preservation for yeah. her family, for herself, you know. It was her only avenue. Well, and what's interesting to me is so often women's decisions are looked at through this lens that we always have like a Disney princess fairy tale option. 
And there's never that option. No. And and men are allowed to make mistakes and be flawed, but for some reason when women are flawed or complex on screen, we we want to vilify. Them. Yeah. And in fact, you know, recently I even decided that I'm gonna stop calling women flawed yeah. characters. Mm-hmm. Because I realized we never speak, we always call the guy the anti-hero. Yeah. Right? But we call women flawed. Yeah. And I'm like, even just using that language and perpetuating mm-hmm. that language is unhealthy. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, no, they're my fucking friends. It's who I am. Like, mm-hmm. you want to call me flawed? Call me. I call myself really complicated. Yeah. And like someone who just really knows herself and I inhabit all these, they're all facets of who yes. I am and they're all facets of who you are. You just have a dick and I have a yeah. vulva, right? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, yes. you know what I mean? But like, you're not flawed, right? Nobody Humans perceives- by nature are complex, period. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So it's interesting because I often, t- okay, I knew I was going to run into this with the character that I'm portraying in Messiah which is, you know, she is very complicated and she's mm-hmm. going through a lot in her life. And and I just think, I was like, well, that is like my, my job as an actor is to find the humanity in people. And I love to play people that are complicated and people that, that do things that you probably wouldn't do or maybe yep. I wouldn't do. But my job is not for you to like them. My job is for you to get to understand them. Yes. And when I get a script, I never – and you won't do the same either, but like you don't judge the character. You're just like, you do the who, what, where, when, why, how, and you figure out why they did, why they, what they did. And then mm-hmm. that's your job to translate that, to convey that, right? Mm-hmm. And then you hope, and then people are moved by, by that, you mm-hmm. know? And that's what people, like I enjoy that opportunity to connect people to, to I want people to be able to put them, themselves in other people's shoes. Like I, I enjoy that. Like that's a gift for me. I've learned so much about life and other people by having the opportunity to put myself in someone else's shoes. I've learned so much mm-hmm. about, and as a result, I've learned so much about myself, really. So it's something like I actually get really like passionate about it because when people say, oh, she's, she's flawed, like, I mean, wow. She, and I'm like, oh, no, like that's your, that's your wife, dude. That's your yeah. sister. That's your mom. Like, like you said, we don't Seer. have the fairy tale. Yeah. Like I'm not a walking romantic comedy. You know what I mean? Like, no. No one is. So. I always joke about that. Like when when women are saying, why can't I find X, Y, and Z? I'm like, it's our fault. Uh, yeah. We've perpetuated the rom-com and now yeah. everyone thinks that that's how it works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's true. And while it's like fun to watch or whatever. So fun. But it's, it, is, it is interesting. So I've made a pact, you know, over the course of this last, you know – round of publicity I've done, I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to, because I've used it so much, mm-hmm. but I've, and it's overused and it's not the right thing because we shouldn't be calling um, people flawed. Like right. you wouldn't, I wouldn't look at you and I would, I would never say to you like, well, you're flawed. Like you would never say that to another never. person. Right. So it it's a judgment that I think that we should just take away mm. entirely. Sometimes I find when I read something that my first pass is to read the story and then my second pass is to get over whatever initial instinctual judgment I have of any character. It's, it's you know, so true. I have yeah. to go through it a couple of times to really start analyzing it from a neutral perspective. Yes. And yeah, you realize it's it's such a base instinct for us as humans. To, ju- to judge first, right? But we can choose to be better. Yeah, exactly. 
And that's kind of where the gold is, right? Yeah. It's sort of like in terms of developing a character, it's like if you can shift away from the judgment, which I think you're absolutely right. Because it's it's why we'll either say like, it's not good, it's bad, and that's why I don't want to do it. But sometimes we dig a little deeper and we can get rid of those those judgments yeah. and we can find the the motivation, the catalyst for like – or you can find the behavior that will lead to, you know, a, a more well-rounded and faceted, you know, uh, character. Yeah. You mentioned Messiah, but before Messiah, you worked on The Path. With yes. Aaron. How was working on that show? Did you, you just oh, have the best time? We had the best time. <laughs> I mean – it was, you know, Aaron played my little brother in Mission Impossible 3. Nobody, like, very few people know oh, that. That's the first time I met him. My God. He plays my little brother. I literally forgot that. Yeah, yeah. And he's in the in the beginning of the scene. I think it's our engagement party scene or something like that. But that's when we first met. Super brief, of course. And then we we really met again on the path. You know, I was like, I really wanted him to do it. Uh, with me and we we had lots of different various talks and stuff and it it all worked out and we just hit it off like a house on fire I mean mm-hmm. and he's true I consider him like one of my best friends now right I'm mean, so easy to call him like your best friend because he's just like the nicest guy yeah. in the world but he has I appreciate his creative process so much we're very very similar he's very raw and he just he really goes for it I mean he's somewhat he didn't really he didn't study acting I didn't study acting so we we would we would very much be and we weren't afraid like we'd look at each other and be like let's just go for it and I felt so safe with him and supported mm. and we would have emotional scenes that were just really like gut wrenching for both of us and then like five minutes later we would start laughing so uncontrollably like the set would have to take a break and people would have to go get like a coffee or whatever because <laughs> we'd be coffee for like ten minutes and we're like fuck we can't do it we can't do it but I think we could like rode the 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 emotion like in every extreme mm-hmm. and you know the whole cast was incredible I mean Hugh as well I mean. Jessica yeah. Goldberg was our showrunner. You know, it was really one of the first times I'd worked with a female showrunner. It was the first time I worked with a female showrunner. And it was incredibly collaborative, mm. the whole process. And it gave me a lot of confidence in terms of, you know, working with my fellow actors, working with specifically with writers, showrunners. And I felt very – I felt that show really empowered me a lot behind the scenes. Mm. So and, what was your behind the scenes experience like? Like what what did you take away as far as what you're referencing, feeling empowered to talk feeling to showrunners, empa- Yeah, was really having, making real, real creative demands mm. and, and making sure that they were met. And so how and was that? Which was really hard. Yeah. How, how does that play out? Like you read a script and you say, I know that we need to work on this. When yeah. are you talking to the writers? I'm just yeah, curious. Yeah, so I really, it was like, a conversation in which – you know, I felt really strongly about the direction of the character. And this was really more so in the first season. And, you know, it took me really being able to articulate myself and taking the opportunity. I think it was even before I signed on the dotted line, I said, these are my expectations creatively mm-hmm. for this role. And this is, you know, and I wrote I wrote it all down and I sent it out to various people, the powers that be. Cool. And I said, listen, if 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 you guys can't do it, I respect it and we're, you know, we'll we'll go our separate ways. But if if you agree to it, then this is what we'll do and this is what I'd like to do. And and really it wasn't anything uh, unreasonable. It was really just 
it gave them an opportunity to see what I really wanted to do with it and, mm-hmm. and what I I was adding real value to it. Mm-hmm. Um and and taking agency. And taking agency mm-hmm. and 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 being clear and concise about my expectations so that if if it wasn't going down that direction that that I could you know, I could address it again and be like, you know what, we all kind of agreed to this. So that was really, uh, that was really important to me. And then them acknowledging it and allowing me that and agreeing to it was incredibly empowering. I was, held a lot of gratitude for that. And then I just, I realized that this was something that I needed to always be engaged in this way creatively, Mm. you know? So that was a big, that was a big deal for me. Yeah. And that continued for three years. And also it was not even just me doing it, but it was like, you know, Aaron and I working together and like pitching an idea and, you know, or Hugh and, you know, it was all of us. It was very incredibly collaborative and empowering, I think, for everybody. So cool. Yeah. Such an amazing show. Yeah. Thank you. And what was it like to go from a show, you know, a a show about the culture of a Mm -hmm. cult? Yes. To then being pitched Messiah, were you like, why is everyone bringing me these yeah. like religious? Well, shows? this thing was so funny because initially I was like, I don't, I don't want to go back to work yet. And then they sent me ten episodes. I was like, oh my god, for for God's sake, it's like, for God's sake, pardon the pun. It's called Messiah. I'm like, I don't want to like do another show that's based around religion and whatnot. And um, basically, I started reading the show, and it's it's really not that. It's much more about that. But you know, Messiah or the path was very much of like a cult. It was a very insular belief system. There was mm-hmm. sort of one leader. It was kind of this one thing on a compound, which was amazing, by the way. Yeah. And Messiah, I guess the real driver for me was that it's this, the global scale of it. I've never been mm-hmm. a part of a show that had such a global reach Yeah. in terms of you know, it's it's geopolitical. It kind of taps into like the politics that I love in my life and the travel and all that because yeah. I got to do all of it. But it, it's very multicultural. The show is shot in Arabic and Hebrew and English. And it's, it's not just a Western perspective. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a real driver. For, that was a really important driver for me. Yes. Because I think that when we're talking about various cultures – you know, I think that when we're isolated either as individuals or or societies or cultures, you know, it really breeds a misunderstanding or it can, right? And what I think that this, sh- this show does is it really lifts the veil on that. And it allows you really to experience a world event, but through the eyes of a, of a Syrian refugee, a child. It allows you to see that world event through the eyes of a, of a woman who's so dogmatic, my character, who works for the CIA, only, you know, believes one way or another. Mm. And you see the eyes, you see it through the eyes of another character who is, you know, searching for salvation, you know, mm-hmm. um, within his, like, own ch- church, played, played beautifully by John Ortiz. So you see these characters, the connective tissue is the show, is that you mm. see all these characters searching for something, really, yeah. whether it's salvation or, or or hope or actual physical freedom. Mm-hmm. And what this specific character does, Messiah or al he really just holds a mirror to everyone else. He doesn't yeah. claim to be the Messiah, but it's everybody else, depending on what your own life experience is, what your own perspective on the world is. Mm. He is whoever you want him to be. And so it's incredibly self-reflective. And I actually really recommend watching it with other people. It's a very yeah. much a communal 
experience in terms of um, because everybody's takeaway is very, very different depart- depending on where you're from that and is so or what cool. your belief system is. And so I've had people who are religious, non-religious, shamans, like healers, like every everywhere, shape or form, like reach out to me and be like, this is so incredible. Whether it speaks to them on a certain religious level, speaks to them on like, I'm glad this show's asking people to look inside and look inside their heart and connect with other people. Like wow. it's all of these things. But the reality is, is like the common thread that I think that we all have is even having the opportunity to shoot it in the Middle East was that in spinning and making friends there is that, my God, we are all more alike than we are different. Yes. We all want to feel, you know, safe. We all want to be accepted. We all want to have freedom. And I don't mm-hmm. care where you're from or who you are, what your background is, but that's the through line of life. Yes. You know what I mean? And I think we just get caught up in the narratives that we've told ourselves, what other people are telling us. And this show really, like, the the curtain is opened, you know, and it allows you, what I was saying earlier, to put yourself in someone else's shoes, which I, which is like my jam. That's so special. So, yeah, I'm really proud of it. Everybody's so tremendous in it. And, the, you know, the show's super multicultural. So, like, I, I'd never – you know, we've got Middle Eastern actors, we've got uh, North African actors, we've got an Israeli, we've got a French, we've got uh, uh, someone from Belgium. You know, we, we all represent so many different corners of the earth. Mm. And to be able to spend that much time with these people in these various places in the Middle East and Israel and Jordan, and then to have it released by Netflix, which is like immediately you're in 150 countries, yeah. this show was the perfect you know, it was the perfect home for this show. And, you know, it's a real, it's a real conversation starter. It's provoking conversation, which is like what we all need to do more of. Yes. And we need to talk to each other. I mean, that's why I wanted to do the podcast. Yeah. Yes. I think it's really important to remember that we see things not simply as they are, but as we are. We see through the lens of our own perspective so often. Yes. And I find that conversation, whether it starts because of a show like this or it's two people sitting across from each other on a microphone, when we really dig into the conversation, analyze, offer opportunity to explore something without an expected outcome. Exactly. We get closer. Exactly. Agreed, agreed, agreed. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And, And appreciating like the vulnerabilities any in each other and and just just seeing that perspective and and just kind of understanding like we were talking earlier it's just really mm. really understanding another person's plight i think is just so mm-hmm. so important when you think about the way it, the show has provoked conversation and made you think about different perspectives mm. how has that affected the way you're looking at the current sort of political climate and <sighs> crisis of division well, I mean, I, it's really, it's, I feel, I'll tell you what, I feel, most days I feel very daunted, mm. you know, at the state of affairs, right? But I'm inspired because I really, I really love the democratic process. Mm. I really love 
our country. Mm-hmm. Um, Same. Yeah, yeah. I really, Thanks I really so care <laughs> about it. I really care about it. And I got to tell you, you know, I recently went. I went to the caucus. This, this. Um, you went back to Iowa. I did. Awesome. I did. And one of the takeaways, even though you know, look, we probably will not have another caucus before because it's so, or again, because it's so antiquated the way that it's done. Mm-hmm. But what I loved about being there and having witnessed them do it, which is a really interesting process of like, you know, you go your first alignment, your second alignment, who do you vote for or whatever, you know, the remaining people, the voters, the caucus goers have to align themselves with the first or the second choice, correct? And in order, you know, you have to reach across the aisle Mm. and you have to go and you're like, okay, what are the things that are more important, most important to you? Well- you know, Pete Buttigieg like believes this, believes this. And then, you know, somebody's from, you know, and you, Elizabeth and you're Warren's on this team and Bernie's and advocating t- for And they're that. talking, they're yeah. talking. And that's, mm. that was like a really interesting takeaway as opposed to, it was just interesting because I always feel like we're just trying to convince somebody else to vote for somebody else. But this was yeah. like a real, and it was, there was something very civil about it. Where it was like, well, these things are really important to me, you know, and she's got this track record. So, you know, I really believe you come to our side, Mm. you know, so I, I really appreciate that process. So I really do, I, I, I hope we can be more, I want to see us come together more, you know, and I just, it's, it's really, I, I don't have a lot of, I wish I, I, I felt really inspired and had something really inspiring to say, but I think it's really important. You know, I got to tell you, listening to Mitt Romney the other day gave me a lot of, a lot of hope. Just, yeah, that, Mm -hmm. that really did. So it's just, it's, it's finding, it's finding those moments Mm -hmm. of, 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 of gold, I guess, of moments of hope, you know, where I feel like, okay, we're not, we're not all lost. And I, it's not that I don't, I don't, I'm I'm all fine. I'm all fine with Republican Party. I think it's just this administration that has has dampened my spirits a well, little bit. When when people are so willing to flagrantly abuse the law, the process, yeah. it's really disheartening when yeah. you're not held to account. You know, yeah. we're meant to have a system of checks and balances and it's become weaponized politically, yes. which is not what it's meant to be. Yes. And, and I thought that's what Mitt Romney reminded everyone of yeah. so well. Yeah, is that this, what happened is illegal. What happened yeah. is unconstitutional. Yeah. We should care. And the fact that we're pretending that the prosecution of illegal behavior should fall along party lines is a problem. Yeah, yeah. And if we could all collectively take a breath and realize that that's true, and to your point, realize what issues we care about, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you care about health care. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you care about your kid's school. Yeah. When Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you care about does the air you're breathing in the water you're drinking make you sick or does it keep you healthy? Precisely. You know, these are truths for all of us. And, and if we rallied on those things. Yeah. And and if we didn't get so caught up in a cycle that's really I believe weaponized against all of us. Yeah. You know, a lot of political parties are able to garner attention on weaponizing issues mm-hmm. that are not the issues that are most important to yeah. us all. Yeah. And we should be coming together on the things that are the most important to us that we agree on. We should be fighting for each Agreed. other. And my hope is that the flagrant disrespect for our democracy that we've been seeing lately Mm. 
will make us all realize that way more of us are on the same team. A hundred percent. That's my hope. I mean, I, I really, I think it's a great hope. And I, again, like we have that fear and this kind of brings us full circle, but you know, there was a silver lining that came out of whatever four years ago. Like yeah. we are all talking, we are all more conscious. Mm-hmm. We're all a lot more clear about what we want, what yep. we don't want. And it's, it's allowed for all of us citizens to be more engaged. And I don't think that necessarily would have existed hadn't we gone down this road. So that is my hope (laughs) that the silver Mm -hmm. lining is, is that we're all going to come out and we're going to remember, you know, what that felt like and that we really have a civic duty to go out and, and vote And I think it's really important. The one thing that I would like to say, and I've been saying it for years, I wish that the very most important thing that we hold dear about our country, which is our democratic process, I wish wish it wasn't run by volunteers. I wish, because everybody means well, but this is the single most important thing and our country literally depends on it. Mm -hmm. The number of times that I've been in a voting booth or in a line or at the caucus the other night, there is so much confusion. Yes. And we don't have a unified voting process in terms of like the way we all vote state to state. Mm. And I think that we need to do work on a lot of voter reform. And I think that we need to really employ people to do this very, very important job. Yes. I also would love to see it made compulsory, but <laughs> that's another thing. I'm like, girl, same. We're yeah. I think, and I'd like to see it not on a Tuesday. On a Tuesday, why don't we have it, it on be a, a Saturday? Holiday should be a national holiday. Yep. Have it on a Saturday. Yeah, make it a national holiday. We've got a national holiday. Make it a national day off and make it compulsory. Thank you. What I will say too, to your point, there is so much confusion about how even the voting process works. This is why the group of us that works on I Am a Voter, which yes. is a bipartisan initiative to just get more people voting. I don't yeah. care how you vote. I just want you to vote. Yeah. Obviously, I'll talk to you about how I believe in voting, but you do you. Yeah. But if you text the word voter to 26797, we've built this really incredible chat bot that in under two minutes can give you your registration status, give you your updated polling location, and, and give you the the websites of the people in your district who are running. So you can go and right. learn and make your own decisions. Right. Nobody, nobody on that online there is trying to tell you how to vote. Right. But they want to make sure you can. And yes. so many people don't realize they've been purged from voter rolls. Yeah. There's a lot of shady stuff going on right now. hundred percent. And so, you know, I, I do it on my phone. It's again, it's two, six, seven, nine, seven text voter. You get your updated info. And if for some reason you have been purged for, purged from your voter roll, you can re-register via the so chat. Good. So and doing it sooner rather than later. Yes, very that soon. shit takes time. It really sometimes. does. It really <laughs> does. I, I'm curious as a mom, how do you talk to your kids about this stuff? Because obviously kids, you know, there's all these people out there, these doctors who are saying that kids are feeling the effects oh, of this stress. Oh, they 100%. 100%. I mean, I'll tell you the perfect example of that was the other day I was driving, and I believe it was NPR, and I just picked up our son, six-year-old, he's kindergartner, Tommy, from school, and I was listening to the news, as I often do, and they started playing a series of sound bites from Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and um, one of these, was about third sound bite in, and it was from some recent rally, and he said, the people of Iowa are so stupid, and... I, that word is just not 
it's a dirty word in our home. And, uh, and I turned down the radio and I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw his face and he was like, Pappy and Nanny Kay aren't stupid. Uncle Johnny's not, Ava's not like, and he went on and it's like, he understood. And and he literally said, Mm. mommy, I wouldn't say the the people of Iowa are stupid. I would say the people of Iowa are good. And I was like, they are, honey. They are. Uh, almost everyone is good. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But to see him wrestle with that, to actually mm-hmm. hear somebody who should be a role model, that is so beyond frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I it's 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 a really challenging time to be able to explain to your kids that this is, that this exists, Mm. you know, there are certain words that friends have read, you know, uh, you know, grab them by the, you know, read on a plane Mm -hmm. and like, what's that, you know, you know, things, things like that. You're like, oh, I don't, I didn't really want to have to talk about this before the time was, you know, right. But, you know, it's, I think we're, it's forcing us to have a dialogue with children that I don't think we necessarily should have to at a certain, you know, right now. Mm. Um, But I also think it's really important for them to see us engaged as well and to be paying attention and to see us, you know, really, you know, saying how important it is to get out there and vote and to be involved. You know, I've taken, Mm -hmm. you know, my daughter to a few marches and, you know, and it's empowering. It's exciting, you know. Mm -hmm. I love seeing photos when parents are taking their kids to the voting booths with them. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's really – and and I think, like, that this is so – it's again like I, I it's it's such a privilege that we've been afforded, yeah. right? The the opportunity to use our voice in however way you choose to use it, mm-hmm. for sure. And I just think the more that they can see us trying to use our voice in a positive way for all people mm-hmm. is the best that we can do. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You're such a cool mom. Well, <laughs> like you're such a cool human, but you're Sometimes such a cool mom. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I want, you know, you know, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that I sort of, I shared one time with um, one of my friends told me, and I kind of wanted to share it with you. She's like, you got to say that out loud. And I said, okay. And we were talking about like the birds and the bees with like kids and like, how do you start having that conversation? And mm. I can be as open as I want, but it's still like, wow, like when and how and how does it go about? And my friend just said, whenever you have that conversation with your son or your daughter, traditionally, historically speaking, we've always said, and when the woman is ready, the man puts his penis inside the vagina. And she said, no, when the woman is ready, the woman takes the penis and puts it inside her vagina. Wow. And it's about taking that sort of power back and realizing, like, consent happens then and there. I mean, it happens well before that, like, when the kids are, like, playing and Willow says, stop, stop. And I'm like, Tommy, what did she just say? She said stop and vice versa and the whole thing. Like, it starts at a young age. But I think that, you know, we have to empower our our young girls and our boys to understand that in that very vulnerable Mm -hmm. moment when, like, passion is like, you know, there, it's that, it's that, it's the woman's, it's it's her choice. It's her job to do it. So you, you wait Mm. until you're ready and she's ready or she'll give you the signal or whatever it is. And I think that's 
that just was like revelatory to me, you know, and in fact, shared it with our school. And I just said, you know, please, you know, I know that you guys are going and having these conversations, but I'd really appreciate if you considered maybe, you know, speaking the language because words matter, you know, when you start saying that, I mean, that's, it's a very big difference Mm -hmm. and that will shape easily the sexual experience from the very first time, Yeah, you know. One of the things I'm so excited that I hear people saying differently now. Yeah. Because remember when we were kids and a boy would, you know, pull your hair or punch you at school. Yeah. And they'd say, well, that means he likes you. And from a young age, what it's teaching women is that love, affection, crushes come with abuse. Yes. Come with your consent Mm -hmm. or your personhood being violated for male pleasure. Yeah. And it's so incredible to me hearing how many teachers and parents now are just taking that bullshit line off the table and and beginning to talk about consent with young kids in terms of ask him or her if you can hug him or her. Mm -hmm. You know, if Mm -hmm. you want to hold someone's hand, ask if they'd like to hold your hand. Beginning to change things like that and beginning to be very clear that physical violence of any kind is unacceptable yeah. and it doesn't mean something cute. The, exactly. These are these conversations around language like yeah. you're talking about, mm-hmm. even when we get further into the conversations of consent as they pertain to intercourse, mm-hmm. that makes me feel really excited yeah. that we're moving yeah. in the right direction. You're right because it's it's all it's ingrained in us, mm-hmm. right? It's like on a cellular level almost when you think yes. of like how many hundreds of years we've been like taught and you mm-hmm. and you and you say things and you do things without even thinking about it and so it's important now that we're aware yes. you know and again that's the silver lining man you know what i mean mm-hmm. of of everything that we've been through is that we're aware now and you see that collective energy of people really paying attention mm-hmm. and i think you know, despite all of the things that we're kind of struggling with as a country, I think that, you know, society, you know, I think that we're more conscious of each other than than ever, yeah. you know, I think. And that's really, really cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I love to ask everyone this question. Oh, yeah. I'm always curious to know what the answer will be. Obviously, the podcast is called Work in Progress. Yeah. And when you hear the phrase, what's the first thing that comes to mind? That's a work in progress in your life. It's it's all oh God. That's such a the balance, mm. the balance of being present for mm-hmm. for my children and devoting as much attention and thought to my children as I devote to my to my work, mm. and and then and then doing my work. And then devoting as much time and thought and intention to that mm-hmm. and then being able to let that go and then be completely present. I mean, I feel like I'm a constant work in progress in that in that department. Yeah. It's a real – and to continue to assert myself, to use my voice, you know, it's so easy to not, right, and to continue to push – the boundaries that are me and like my like comfort zones, mm-hmm. you know, creatively. Yeah. I would Very say that. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. What a yeah. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad we did You're the best. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush, and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. 
Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editors are Josh Windish and Matt Sasaki. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. 